Welcome to episode four of Hosted Payload. From Wiley Ryan in Washington, D.C., I'm Henry Gola. It's a movie that the Chicago Tribune called a masterpiece that can leave you dizzy with wonder, and the Washington Post said was pretentious, abysmally slow, amateurishly acted, and above all, wrong. Which is it? My guest Steve Merlis of Samsung and I ask all the tough questions about Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. But first, my colleague Chloe Hawker returns to get us up to speed in the Orbital Debrief. All right, welcome into the Orbital Debrief, back by popular demand. It's the one and only Chloe Hawker. Chloe, welcome back. Thank you. Excited to be back. All right. You're the first return (laughs) guest for the Orbital Debrief. What do we need to know? Yeah, so lots going on this month. Uh, Our first item is something our listeners may have seen in the news. SpaceX had a very colorful launch of its Starship Super Heavy rocket a couple of weeks ago. All right, well, tell us about that. What happened? Was it a success or a failure? What's going on? Yeah, so great question. Uh, So the Starship Super Heavy, for some background, is ultimately intended to be a fully reusable rocket that's capable of putting between 100 and 150 tons of mass into orbit. It's more than twice as powerful as NASA's Space Launch System Moon rocket, for some context. Um, At launch, Starship had a series of engine failures. Three of the 33 engines didn't get through startup, another engine lost communications, and then heat shield damage occurred around several engines, so SpaceX ultimately lost control of the rocket and didn't attempt to separate the upper stage from the rocket. The flight termination system didn't operate as quickly as they anticipated, so there was also some damage to the launch pad. All right, so what did Mr. Musk say about this? So Elon Musk said that the test was roughly sort of what he expected and maybe slightly exceeded his expectations. So I think folks are calling this a successful failure. Um, SpaceX still plans to attempt four or five more Starship launches this year and will spend about $2 billion on it. Wow. Okay. Maybe we need to know the expectations ahead of time going in so so the the general public can be more up to speed and and know what to expect. So what's up next? So second this month, AST Space Mobile recently made its first voice call between a standard smartphone and its Blue Walker 3 satellite using Spectrum license to AT&T. The call connected a user in Texas with a user in Japan. And it's a pretty big deal because other current direct-to-device services like Apple's emergency SOS function have been limited to text-based communications. Calls using satellites are a big deal, and that is pretty cool. They use an experimental license for this, Chloe. That sounds exciting. What else at the FCC is going on this month? More Spectrum news, I hear. Yes, more Spectrum news. So the FCC recently released a draft order in the 12.2 gigahertz and 12.7 gigahertz proceeding. So they found that mobile use in the 12.2 gigahertz band would interfere with satellite use, but they're reviewing the 12.7 gigahertz band for expanded use. All right, that is a mouthful. So to be clear, (laughs) 12.2 is an order and NPRM, correct? So an order and a notice and 12.7 is just a notice at this point coming off in yes. a notice of inquiry. Okay. That's correct. So why does this matter for the space industry? So these two proceedings have presented something of a showdown between the satellite industry and terrestrial operators. The 12.2 gigahertz band is used by direct broadcast satellite services, NGSO fixed satellite services, 
and Multi-Channel Video and Data Distribution Services, or MVDDS. The latter two both operate on a non-harmful interference basis to direct broadcast satellite services. MVDDS licensees have petitioned the FCC to allow two-way mobile broadband in the band, while satellite operators have argued this would create serious interference to their operation. And for, for those who don't know, Chloe, direct broadcast satellite services, that is your dish and direct TV, correct? Yes. That's your yes. home yes. satellite cable alternative? Okay. Exactly. So yeah, and they've, they've argued that this band is really important for their operations. But meanwhile, the 12.7 gigahertz band has co-primary allocations for the fixed service, fixed satellite service, and the mobile service. So the commission released an NOI asking whether the band is appropriate for mobile broadband or other expanded use. Okay, great. So what would the 12.2 order portion do? So that order, if adopted, would establish that the 12.2 gigahertz band will not work for two-way terrestrial 5G due to serious interference risks for satellite operators, as those operators had argued. The item would still request comment. As you mentioned, it's also a notice of uh, proposed rulemaking. It would still request comment on whether there's potential to expand terrestrial fixed use of the band, as well as whether the FCC should allow unlicensed use. And then on the other hand, the 12.7 gigahertz item proposes to repurpose some or all of the 12.7 gigahertz band for mobile broadband and other expanded use. And it requests comments on the economic and international harmonization benefits of doing so. Okay, that's the mobile portion of what's going on there. Mm -hmm. What are the satellite folks saying in the satellite industry? Right, so in the item, the commission acknowledges the satellite industry is split on this. Some satellite operators support expanding or examining expanded use, but caution that out-of-band emissions would need to be limited. And other satellite operators say that rules should allow satellite services to make better use of the band rather than allowing more terrestrial use. Now, the commission does say it doesn't anticipate satellite operations in the band being relocated or having their authorization sunset. All right, so when should we expect action on this? Yeah, so the commission is currently scheduled to vote on the item at its May 18th open meeting. And if the commission approves the item, comments will be due 30 days after publication in the Federal Register. We love the Federal Register. All right, <laughs> the exciting space news just keeps on coming. Yeah, it really does. I, uh, I think Elon Musk summed it up best when he was talking about upcoming Starship launches. He said, once again, excitement is guaranteed, success is not. Well, success is guaranteed on Hosted Payload. Thanks for joining us, Chloe. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Henry. Joining me today is my good friend, Steve Merlis, who is in the Public Affairs Department at Samsung, heading up their strategy and communications teams. Steve, welcome to Hosted Payload. Henry, thanks for having me here. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. So Steve and I are going to talk about a movie that came out prior to both of us being born in 1968. We're going to talk about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Steve, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to give us a little background for the uh, listeners. Yeah, of course. And, and Henry, before you do that, maybe I can just jump in and let you know that you know when I talk about 2001, Space Odyssey in front of different groups, I like to make it clear that what I'm talking about are my own opinions and not the opinions of my employer. Yes. Thanks so much for that clarification. All right, let's get into the background on 2001. 
This movie was directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Won an Oscar for Best Effects and was nominated and lost for Best Director and Best Screenplay. The plot at a very high level is a team of astronauts discover a large black monolith buried on the moon and a spacecraft with five humans, three in hibernation, and the supercomputer HAL 9000 are sent to Jupiter to find out more about it. Originally met with scorn by some viewers and critics, others now consider the movie to be one of the masterpieces of the 20th century. But we're here today to find out what Steve Merlis thinks of this movie. Steve and FCC speak for 2001 A Space Odyssey, petition to deny, or comments and support? Oh, great question. Opposition to motion for extension of time. <laughs> this thing is just way too long. And I know Kubrick already cut it from 161 minutes to 140 minutes, but still, even at that, it, it's just too long. I mean, it it it, uh, it definitely tests the patience. It starts off with about a minute of a black screen. Um, Three minutes, before they even. What's that? Three minutes. It starts off with three minutes of a black screen. It was long enough that I waited for a minute and a half, and I wondered if my cable connection was broken. I went onto YouTube. I checked, is it supposed to start off with this black screen? And I found out, yes, it is. And I found that there was a whole cohort of people who have asked the same exact question. Yeah, Sorry, it's kind of like when the Sopranos went to black, right? And people were wondering if if <laughs> yeah. their cable had gone out at the end of the Sopranos. But no, that was actually just the ending. So. Well, a lot of people say, and we'll talk about this later, about other sort of pop culture things that stole from 2001. But it's clear that the Sopranos ending comes directly from this. So <laughs> you, you think so? Okay. So what else? What else was stolen directly from, from this movie? I mean, it has a lot of pop culture. A lot, lot, lot of pulp, a lot of things that were stolen by pop culture for sure. I mean, what I'm, I'm going to say something that I think a lot of your listeners are going to get upset with, but I think the whole Star Wars franchise it was stolen from this. Yes. Well, it's a different feel, right? I mean, this is more uh, Star Wars came out in the '70s, so yep. the, the next decade and post Vietnam, it's more about hope, right? Do you feel this movie is hopeful and that Star Wars sort of stole that tone? Or are you talking more about the visuals for Star Wars? The visuals seem the exact same. I was watching it with my son who could only bear 15 minutes of it. And he said to me, Dad, this looks just like Star Wars. So, so your son came in uh, in Act 2 when they were already in space. So I watched the first part of the movie, which is the Dawn of Man with the apes with Rose and Ruby, who were nine. And they loved the cheetah. They they thought the cheetah was a really good character. Uh, I have to agree with, given that it killed an ape and a zebra in about five minutes of movie time. And then it's never seen again. I thought the cheetah unsung hero what's your takeaway from act one with the apes did this movie bite off more than it could chew can we let, let me just since i know you can edit stuff let me take it back a little bit here <laughs> <laughs> my take on this movie i think it's fantastic there has never been a movie that i have fallen asleep in more that i thought was just an excellent piece of filmmaking i fell asleep three different times watching this movie <laughs> had to rewind it each time and was just blown away by how much I liked the movie. Now, a couple of things to add on there. One, I have never seen this movie in full before. When I was a junior in college, I watched the first 20 minutes and then shut it off. 
So I was coming in blank. Number two, I would say about this movie. The first and the second acts, if we break it down that way, are fantastic. So that's with the Dawn of the Apes, and then that's with the outer space stuff and how. The third act is just complete garbage. Yeah. When he goes through what I what I thought what I thought of when he was flying through the special effects was like a screensaver on my college desktop, right? Yeah. It, like, the effects are, are awful. <laughs> they do not hold up. And then he ends up yeah, go ahead. Well, they don't hold up, but I will say what really, maybe some of the really good things about, like the cinematography in this movie is fantastic and how Mm -hmm. he captures all these different things. Just fantastic. The Dawn of Man, just great opening shots. The Vistas, uh, Mm -hmm. being remastered in HD, it looks like it just looks fantastic. Um, Yeah. The Dawn of Man and some of the underlying, I've just never seen sort of someone depict what sort of one group of chimpanzees taking over the other chimpanzees and becoming the dominant one looks like. Well, right. So, I mean, I've, I, I, you know, I, I dutifully did some research on this movie after watching it and it's supposed to, as the title suggests, be based on Homer's odyssey, but instead of encapsulating 10 years, it's supposed to be millions of years from the dawn of man all the way until whatever happens at the end there in act three, which I'm as confused as anyone, even after reading about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautifully shot. It reminded me a lot of the Martian, similar vistas and similar sort of like scapes, um, in, in the first act when they were there with the apes. Um, I thought having not seen the movie since college also, that it was going to go somewhere else, that the way they were showing the apes fighting and this sort of, uh, you know, primitive, you know, man battling man, ape battling ape. I thought that's I thought that's where this was going to go. And I guess it kind of does in act two, except it's man battling artificial intelligence. Yeah. And I would say before we get on to part two, part one, I mean, I would just say ultimately ferocious scary visceral never seen before just incredibly well done and i really liked it more as a 40 year old individual than i did as a 20 year old who had a lot less time for stuff like this <laughs> so one of the pop culture things that was that's been stolen numerous numerous times is the bone being thrown up in the air that sort of jump cuts to a spaceship right kind yeah. of a classic kubrick shot there that has seeped into pop culture also the classical music right i mean that those pieces have been seen in hundreds of commercials if there's a super bowl that doesn't have a commercial that bites 2001 a space odyssey it's like it's missing something all right so act two introduces hal i see your screen name here actually is hal so you were inspired by hal is hal your favorite character in the movie it's a great question. <laughs> like your daughter's Ruby and Rose, my favorite character would have to be the cheetah. <laughs> also like the cheetah. That's good. That's good. So how how the computer, he seems neurotic, right? Focused on self-preservation. You compare that to maybe like Skynet in the Terminator movies where they set off a nuclear war so that machines can rule Earth. With AI gaining steam, Steve, are either of these visions the future of artificial intelligence? (laughs) (laughs) 
I will say I found it amazing how easily it was to just kill Hal. All you go in there, you just need a screwdriver and you just get rid of Hal. So if that's as bad as AI is going to get, I think we're okay. Why? If I agree with you, it was it was really really easy. Why did they need to sneak around and and go into a pod? And not, why couldn't they just have done that? What's it? I, it's a great question. I think the answer is pretty simple. It's that um, Stanley Kubrick's not really good at plotting movies, <laughs> and that's it. That's it. Uh, I did read that actually the script would would they were changing it as they went. It was almost like a, it was almost like Best in Show. Or one of these Christopher Guest improv movies, <laughs> except it wasn't comedy. It was a, it was a you know high budget drama. Um, I mean, at the time, it, it, you know, to go back to one of your points earlier, it's ra- it would be rare today for a studio to greenlight a movie with this big a budget that was this artsy. Yes, for lack of a better term. I mean, and I think. I think if it's, I think if a studio saw this cut come out, they'd probably send it back and say reshoot it and give me some more action or give me some more dialogue or give me something. Yes. Today, for sure. Um, is that good or bad? I. Th- it could use the if you had the right showrunners, the right editors, the right writers, you could probably punch it up a little bit better. But I think it stands on its own. Let me put it this way: as I am watching the movie. And this is how I watch all great movies or is I'm going through and every 10, 20 minutes I'm checking with myself. Is this, is this a classic movie? Is this a great movie? This is like fantastic. Has anyone seen this movie? I'm going through, I'm seeing the Dawn of man. I'm hearing the music I'm like, Oh my goodness. They're hitting out of the park. Like one by one. It's, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Going the beginning setups of Hal uh, and the outer space stuff. Fantastic. Then you get about halfway through and I fall asleep. There's never been a movie before where I feel like it's just hitting hit after hit after hit. And then I just fall asleep. So, yes, I think an editor, I think some writers, some language, some dialogue could have sort of punched up that middle of the second act and helped get us through the end. So the end, the third act, you alluded to it before. What what is what do you think is going on there? What is happening? And why did it not land for you? Two-part question. Two-part question. The length of the laser show and the upside-down color vistas. Yeah. It was just too long. I, I liked it a little bit. I enjoyed it. I Also, knowing it comes from 1968, that's impressive. Mm-hmm. It just goes on too long. And then the very end with the character Dave and seeing the other versions of character Dave until he becomes that baby with the one giant eye. Yeah. I just didn't understand the, the too many Daves. Um, there is a, a, do you know, Dr. Seuss? Have you heard of Dr. Seuss? I've heard of Dr. Seuss. Yes. One is one of his most famous stories is called too many Daves. <laughs> and I would say if I was gonna, I would say, I'd say Act 3 of 2001 Space Odyssey reminded me a lot of Too Many Daves. Do you think he wrote Too Many Daves before or after seeing Act 3 of 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, knowing Dr. Seuss, it was definitely written right after he, he saw 2001. Um, do you think commercial space flight with stewardesses with Velcro shoes was ingenious? Or do you think the ship looked too much like a commercial airplane? 
I thought it was fantastic. I thought everything they did to weave in the current companies of the time was excellent. <laughs> everything you're laughing. I, I I I just thought it was great, and I thought in so many ways they predicted accurately lots of things that we see in our industry today, from tablets to video conferencing. Really interesting, really impressive foresight on his part. There were some fails, of course. The camera that they use when they're taking pictures of the rectangular box. That mm-hmm. thing's ridiculous, you know, technology yeah. advances further, but generally very impressed with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I noticed on the video conference with the, with the kid that she was paying way too much attention on the video conference. That was a little unrealistic for me, knowing how my kids can't stand to be on a, on a, on a video conference. Uh, yeah. Agreed on that. And, and maybe it's the right time now to introduce some awards that we'd like to give out on this podcast. Okay. Yes, please do. Okay. This award is the Too Many Footnotes Award <laughs> in honor of all those associates out there at law firms putting footnotes <laughs> into documents. Yes. What could be cut? What could be cut? Cut Act 3. Cut the all intermission, right. by the way. I mean, also, also cut the intermission. I haven't seen a movie with an uh, intermission is very common in 1960s movies, but... The, the first one I ever saw was when my dad made me watch Monty Python. Yeah. And that had an intermission, which I thought was funny at the time. I thought it was like I thought it was like a gag. But now I realize like a lot of movies back then actually had an intermission. <laughs> Cut that out. We don't need that anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. And you know what? The intermission consists. After, is it after the intermission they do that ridiculous song again with the black screen? I think so. Yes. Yeah. They, they start off with a black screen yeah. again. Uh-huh. Cut out the black screen from the intermission and from the beginning of the movie. Totally unnecessary. Agreed. Is that it for your awards? You got anything else? I do have one more. All right. The Computer Inquiry 2 Award <laughs> for the most confusing part of the movie. Henry, over to you. Well, we've already discussed the end. The end is, is super confusing. Um, I mean, honestly... If, if I didn't read ab- about the movie after the movie to sort of fill in some blanks, the monolith itself, super confusing. Apparently, the monolith in scene one is supposed to have given some signal or some sort of knowledge to the apes to like set them on the course to evolve into humans. I missed that. Did you get that when you saw it? Yeah, I got that with the first monolith. What was confusing to me then was when it reappears in the second act and all of the people presumably die when it makes the high-pitched noise, what's it doing there? And then what's it doing in the third act when you see it in outer space? So the first act, I totally understand. It's giving some sort of knowledge. But second and third, again, we fall into the Stanley Kubrick trap of not really much exposition or plotting to help the viewer. Yeah, I think we don't learn what it did in the second act until Hal dies and the video plays, right? And it says, Hmm. uh, by the way, it's communicated with Jupiter, and now we've sent you to Jupiter to find out what's going on. That was the whole problem with that. We didn't even know what they were doing on that. Uh, (laughs) They were just, they were on a ship to Jupiter, and then it's not until the end we find out, oh, you're going to Jupiter because some alien beings sent a signal to Jupiter. Agreed. I mean, that's that 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 I didn't understand. The question is, what else did I understand in this movie? Yes. 
I mean, most of the movie, right? I mean, it's art. You'd have to watch it over and over again, and you'd probably like learn something else each time you saw it. But it's like that really how I want to spend each of my weekends for two and a half hours. I don't know. Maybe I'd rather go look at a painting for 20 minutes. And Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I come out of the first act, part one, Rise of the Apes or Dawn of the Apes. <laughs> it has some very starring Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, starring Mark Wahlberg. That's let's get into that. Actually, that was one of my last questions. Okay, Act One begins. We have a bunch of chimpanzees. We then have a rival gang of chimpanzees. Am I an idiot for not knowing for the first five minutes that these were humans playing the roles of those chimpanzees? Yes. Okay. I thought that they actually had incredibly well-trained chimps doing this, and I was amazed. I think it was a real cheetah, though. It could have been a real cheetah. That would have been very dangerous for the for the human actors. So. Uh, he's wild, that Kubrick guy. Um, did you find it interesting that Clive Owen was in this movie, even though it was before he was born? Where is this going? What? Never how mind. is Clive? How Never is Clive? Oh, what? Henry, what would it be like to have a zero gravity toilet? Um, I it was. Do you think that was in there for comedic effect? I think so, and that's another one of these touches that you get in the first half of Act Two that I really like. There's a lot of thought going into it, and then all of the thought starts to disappear. It it did. I I think it was a joke, you know. The, the trope of airplane food being bad was like a huge joke. And I think he yes. ate and then had to go to the space toilet, right? That was the joke? Okay. Yes. All right. I think I actually got that one. Uh, the Chekhov's Gun Award. Okay. They keep showing the thing with the explosive bolts. Yes. Danny comes downstairs, my son, and he goes, oh, this is the Chekhov's gun. They're not going to keep showing explosive bolts. He said, they better do something if they're going to show all these explosive bolts. And sure enough, he uses the explosive bolts to bust in there and get into back in the space shuttle. Yeah, they did keep showing it. I thought I thought it was going to I thought Hal was going to kill them with explosive bolts. That's where I thought he was going. That's where I thought explosive bolts were going. Not 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 that Dr. Dave Bowman would use it to get back inside the ship. Um, so. OK, Henry, we see BBC 12, the channel that they're watching on the space shuttle. In modern times, what's the equivalent of BBC 12? Well, I mean, it's not 2023, but maybe going back a decade or so, it's got to be the Ocho. That's right. Exactly right. The Ocho, famous for? Dodgeball. And Norwegian death diving. (laughs) Henry, did you think that the chimpanzees were played by humans? Haven't we been through this already? (laughs) Uh, Interesting tidbit, Steve. While I yeah. while I have you, do you know yeah. that uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who co-wrote this with Stanley yeah. Kubrick, you know he could be considered the godfather of satellite communications. He wrote a 1945 paper mm-hmm. on extraterrestrial relays. It was yes. in the British magazine Wireless World. He proposed a global system of geostationary satellites, which he argued would revolutionize global telecommunications. So Arthur C. Clarke, way ahead of his time. What else was ahead of its time in this movie, Steve? It's 1968. We haven't even gotten to the moon yet. So No, we're a year before the moon. We're a year before the moon. Again, 
points for Kubrick, like great movie. How he was able to distill all of this, it could have been made. I mean, this is a, a home run art movie, art house movie, if the year's 2021. Although the year is 2023. <laughs> it's 2023. So that's good. That's good. Is it, is it also a home run in 2023? This, <laughs> this movie is a home run in 2023, let alone 1968, if you're going for the art house win. All right. Yeah. Henry, Steve, anything else to add? Favorite movies of all time. What's that? Give me that where one would you more rank time. it in your favorite movies of all time? I don't think it is one of my favorite movies of all time. I thought it was had a lot of good parts and a lot of bad parts. I will, I will, I am never going to watch it again. But I'm glad I watched it in preparation for this interview with you. <laughs> where would you rank it in your top movies of all time? I think I'd put it top 250. Okay. If they got rid of the ending, maybe top 200. All right. Uh, so in your top 250, because they're not getting rid of the ending, they're not going to reshoot it now. Mm-hmm. Where what movies are sandwiched around it in your top 250? In your rankings, I would say it's a great question. Probably Sandlot and Predator Two. Okay, yeah, I mean classic rankings there, right there. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Did you have anything else? Thanks for having me, Henry. It's great. It's great to do this with you today. Thanks for joining Hosted Payload. Visit us at wiley.law. Search for Satellite Space or TMT.